This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, Justin and I are here again, and we have two exciting articles to share with you. Before we go forward with that, Justin, how is life in Kingston? Is it snowing yet? Uh, yeah, how are things there? It's not snowing, but I feel like it's always rainy. Uh, very windy and cold, but it's, it's fall, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I remember it's like a snowy, slushy kind of winter. Those are my my memories of being an undergrad at Queens. And it sounds like that might still hold true. A hundred percent it does. All right. Well, completely unrelated. What trial are you talking about first today? So today I'm talking about the ADVOR trial, which sort of stands for uh, the use of acetazolamide in acute decompensated heart failure with volume overload. It was published this past August um, by Mullins et al. in Nedjum. Awesome. And what was the research question? So this study was examining whether or not the addition of acetazolamide to standard intravenous loop diuretic therapy, such as the use of Lasix, would improve the incidence of successful decongestion amongst patients that had acute decompensated heart failure. Makes sense to me. I just came off service a week ago and had multiple patients uh, admitted with acute and decompensated heart failure. So you you don't have to convince me why this is important, but why was this important from your standpoint? So really, I think that this is an important study to look at because current guidelines really only recommend the use of intravenous loop diuretics to help with symptoms of volume overload in patients that have decompensated heart failure. Um, However, individuals that use sort of a single loop diuretic um, for volume overload have often residual clinical signs of volume overload at discharge, which is a strong predictor of poor outcome. And so really, the study was trying to see if using a sequential diuretic, um, such as acetazolamide, in addition to a loop diuretic, would improve the treatment of volume overload in patients that had decompensated heart failure and ultimately help with their outcomes. Awesome. And what was the study design? So the study was multi-center randomized, and it was done in a parallel group double-blind fashion. It was also placebo-controlled. And essentially, uh, this was done um, through sort of an investigator-initiated academic context, and it was without any sort of industry involvement. Awesome. And give me some more. What was the inclusion-exclusion criteria, all that good stuff? Alrighty. So individuals um, were included if they were adults that were admitted to the hospital because of decompensated heart failure and had at least one clinical sign of volume overload. So whether that was thing, something like edema, peripherally pleural effusions, or ascites, and having an elevated uh, NT pro-BNP or a BNP level um, at the corresponding sort of assay cutoff point. And these individuals were sort of collectively eligible for for participation in the study. Beyond that, um, these individuals also had to have receipt of oral maintenance therapy with Lasix or an equivalent dose of something like bumetanide or torsamide for at least one month before randomization within the study. Beyond that, um, exclusion criteria were essentially um, individuals that had received uh, acetazolamide maintenance therapy or treatment with another um, SGLT2 inhibitor um, as part of their heart failure management or management of or another existing medical condition, having hypotension with a systolic blood pressure less than 90, and also having a GFR of less than 20. Um, and so these patients were sort of either included, excluded, and then were assigned in a one-to-one fashion to receive a bolus of acetazolamide or a matching placebo. Okay, awesome. And um, uh, in terms of the outcomes? So the study was looking at a primary endpoint of successful decongestion, which was defined as the absence of having features of volume overload. And for them, that meant having no more than trace peripheral edema, 
no residual pleural effusion, and no residual ascites after diuresis. And this sort of outcome was assessed by a cardiologist that was trained in assessing volume status or decongestion. This was within three days after randomization and receiving their associated placebo or treatment. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So, you know, randomized, uh, placebo-controlled, double-blind trial, which is very impressive, of patients who are in hospital with you know, heart failure, clinically confirmed, and an elevated BNP um, without really any contraindication to receiving acetazolamide and on a decent dose of Lasix. And the primary outcome was successful decongestion. Does that sound about right? That was a great summary. Awesome. And what did the patients look like? So overall, the patients were generally balanced with respect to age and sex composition. Uh, they also had similar degrees of comorbidities, including things like BMI, coronary artery disease, diabetes. And each group had a similar proportion of NYHA functional status, as well as sort of similar degrees of volume overload at the time of randomization. However, I think the biggest difference between each sort of category, the group receiving acetazolamide and the placebo control group, were that greater than 98% of the participants in the study were white, um, sort of as a result of the study being primarily conducted in Belgium. Right. Okay. And then, um, you know, I guess, you know, the other thing I always ask myself when I want to apply this to the next patient on the ward is a sort of, you know, age and sex breakdown. So like this was, you know, individuals on average in their late seventies, like 78, 65% men. Um, and as you alluded to, you know, a decent number of comorbidities, 70% with AFib, 40% with diabetes, 70% with high blood pressure. So, um, this certainly, I can envision the patient, um, in hospital who I'm seeing that might make it into the trial. Anyway, what did they find? What were the primary outcomes and secondary outcomes? So with respect to their primary endpoint of successful decongestion or resumption of sort of a euvolemic status, they found that successful decongestion occurred in 108 out of 256 patients in the acetazolamide group and 79 out of 259 patients in the placebo group. Um, so overall, it does sort of indicate with a p-value of less than 0.001 that decongestion was more effective if they got acetazolamide in addition to Lasix. Um, and that this effect was seen across all of their pre-specified subgroups. Beyond that, they also looked at secondary outcomes, including death from any cause or rehospitalization for heart failure, uh, which occurred in 76 out of 256 patients in the acetazolamide group and 72 out of the 259 in the placebo group. So there was no significant difference between uh, mortality or rehospitalization, um, despite which arm they were randomized to. And more generally, they didn't have any um, adverse safety outcomes um, that were significantly different between um, the uh, acetazolamide group and the placebo control group. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is pretty impressive. And uh, I know you mentioned p-values. Some people love them. Some people hate them. I think I'm closer to the hate category. And the problem with p-values is it doesn't give you a sense of the clinical magnitude of the difference. But in this case, the clinical magnitude was impressive, right? So 42% of patients had this successful decongestion in the acetazolamide group compared to, you know, 30 some odd percent in the placebo group. That's more than a 10% absolute risk reduction, right? So, so it's like a number needed to treat of 10 people um, to, you know, have, I guess, improve one patient's decongestion score or said differently, okay, you need to treat 10 people to have one person successfully decongested to be uh, dry as a bone, I guess, um, uh, through the use of acetazolamide. So that's pretty impressive, actually. But before I temper my excitement. What are some limitations here? 
Alrighty, so I alluded to one of uh, the biggest limitations, which is the sort of demographics of their study population, and that most of the individuals were white. And so even though from a comorbidity perspective, they may be quite representative of a typical sort of patient admitted to a general internal medicine service. Um, overall, though, it's quite hard to apply these results um, to other racial or ethnic subgroups. Beyond that, um, the patients that were included in the study had a history of chronic heart failure um, and had been receiving some sort of long-term management for this, including the use of Lasix as an outpatient. And so overall, um, the results of the study may not be truly applicable to those with newly diagnosed heart failure. Uh, and beyond that, uh, there it was really hard to tell uh, which patients were actually on sort of full goal-directed medical therapy if they did have HFREF. And beyond that, this trial was done um, right as all of the evidence for SGLT2 inhibitors had been coming out. And so these patients were also not on them as well in order to be part of the inclusion criteria. Um, and I think as a final point, the congestion score that they used or their ability to assess if someone was fully decongested uh, was really based on physical examination and assessment of extracellular volume. And so I think that there could have been a subjective component in sort of that primary outcome or endpoint. Yeah, you know, I think for me, it's really that the primary outcome is probably the biggest uh, sticking point here. I have less of a concern in terms of whether or not these patients, you know, were on goal-directed medical treatment. Because remember, with randomization, those should be balanced between the two groups. So I, I care a little bit less, less about that. And then also the congestion score. You know, I don't expect there to be bias that's introduced by the surveyor, you know, this cardiologist, because again, he or she is blinded. So they don't know what the person got. I think my bigger issue is just like, how important is this congestion score? Um, how important is that clinically? And I'm just not sure. Anyway, what was the take-home point of this study? So overall, the take-home point was that the addition of acetazolamide to standardized loop diuretic therapy in patients that had decompensated heart failure led to a higher incidence of successful decongestion, but was not associated with any decreased rates of hospitalization or any um, decreased mortality in patients. Okay, is this practice changing for you? For me, I guess I'm on the fence, but in order to sort of take a stance, I don't necessarily think that this is practice changing for me. I think that, um, as we were talking about, there are a couple big limitations in the study, including the generalizability of the results, as well as sort of the significance of what decongestion means. I think that what they did show was that um, they had a large improvement in symptom burden in these patients, and that in turn sort of decreased their duration of hospital admission, which I think for the patient is better, and I think for the healthcare system more broadly is better. Um, but I, I don't know if this is something that you would start every single patient on in addition to Lasix if they come in. Um, there are some patients that may benefit from it, for example, those that have a concurrent metabolic alkalosis, um, and that's sort of done in practice currently. Um, but overall, I think that the study would allow you to sort of remember that you can use acetazolamide. It may help in terms of expediting discharge and helping improve their volume status more quickly. Um, but overall, um, that it really won't shake the type of practice that, or change the type of practice that I have. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think it's interesting. So when I was on service, we were seeing a, a patient who was awaiting surgery, but was in active heart failure. And they're like, we need to get this person as dry as possible, as quickly as possible to get them to the OR. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to add acetazolamide onto this. No, this clinical trial didn't look at pre-op patients, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of like the fact that I now have this additional tool, especially if my goal is 
uh, I don't know, maybe it's a patient who's like, listen, doc, I'm getting out of here in 48 hours, no matter what you do. Okay, then let's get you some acetazolamide. Let's get you some SGLT2. Let's mix things up a bit. But I think I certainly agree with your sentiment. Um, and for me, in that N of one, it's pra- changed my practice. And I do think in select circumstances where it's like, you know, yes, the surrogate outcome kind of sucks, but if it correlates with the patient feeling better, faster, wicked. So anyway, I think I agree with you. And I mean, for me, these aren't as good as SGLT2. So I'd much rather add that to somebody's Lasix uh, as opposed to acetazolamide, except maybe in some rare circumstances. Does that kind of make sense? It definitely does. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Next up, we will stick with the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this next study is entitled Trial of Endovascular Treatment of Acute Basilar Artery Occlusion. Um, so published just uh, in October of 2022, and it was the attention trial. Well, that sounds very interesting. What was the research question they were looking at? To investigate whether endovascular thrombectomy added to best medical care would be superior to best medical care alone in patients with acute stroke due to basilar artery occlusion who presented within 12 hours after their estimated time of the stroke. And that sounds like a very, very important question to answer. But in, I guess, your thoughts and perspectives, why is it important? Uh, When I'm in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, I am the stroke on call doctor. And having seen patients with uh, basilar strokes, the outcomes are devastating, absolutely devastating. And right now, aside from maybe TPA, uh, if they come in fast enough, there's very little we can do. We know that based on the literature that 80% of patients will die or remain with severe disability. So I think if there's anything we can do to shift this needle towards better outcomes, I'm all for it. We also know that there's been at least one prior trial of EVT for basilar stroke. It suggested there might be an improvement, um, but with wide confidence intervals and a relatively small study, um, hence why I think this is so important and I think we're onto something. And uh, what was their study design that they used? So this was a multi-center, prospective, randomized controlled trial of endovascular thrombectomy for basilar artery occlusion at uh, 36 hospitals in China. Uh, Similar to your study, it was investigator-initiated rather than industry-funded. They included adults who were 18 years of age and older with a moderate to severe basilar artery stroke. So they defined that using the um, NIH uh, stroke scale of a score of 10 or higher. So just for the listeners to remember, you know, a mild stroke would be sort of four or lower. So this is a pretty significant stroke. It had to be confirmed on CTA or MRA. And what was interesting, in order for hospitals to be a part of um, this study, it had to be hospitals that did at least 100 EVT procedures per year. And the individual interventionalist um, had to have at least five years of experience. They also only included hospitals that had a very good um, time of hospital arrival to TPA uh, of less than 60 minutes. Um, in terms of exclusion criteria, um, if at the time of randomization, the basilar artery was actually patent, they would be excluded. Uh, intracranial hemorrhage, they'd be excluded. Um, signs of a uh, moderate to large posterior stroke um, based on this PC aspect score, which I've never heard of before and I'm not going to talk about. Um, and, and patients were randomized two to one to undergo EVT um, and best medical therapy or to receive best medical treatment alone. 
So that two to one ratio is, is purposeful. It, it means when you flip the coin, um, you're twice as likely to get EVT and best medical therapy as opposed to just med best medical therapy alone. And then um, I'll also note that at these sites, they all had a similar threshold of when to give TPA, and that was within four and a half hours, which is you know certainly what I do up in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, it was an unblinded, unblinded trial, but the outcome adjudication was blinded, and the outcome was a good functional status, and that was defined as a ranking score of zero to three at 90 days. What was the table one, or what did the patients look like? So 507 patients were approached, and 342 were randomized. Um, average age was 66. Um, time from sort of stroke onset to randomization was five hours. The median uh, NIH stroke scale score was 24. Like that's a pretty severe stroke. Um, and um, I should note that half of the individuals who got thrombectomy, they were actually under general anesthetic for it. And what's also really important is to know, okay, how often did the two groups get TPA? And it was almost identical. So, you know, 31% in the thrombectomy arm versus 34% in those who did not. And what were their uh, primary and secondary outcomes? Impressive. They were very impressive, okay? So the primary outcome, remember, that's a Rankin score of 0 to 3. And if you're like, uh, what on earth is a Rankin score? So a Rankin score of 6 would mean the patient died. A Rankin score of 5 would be severe disability. Um, and with each lower and lower point, it's uh, lower and lower uh, um degrees of disability. So 46% um, in adults in the thrombectomy group compared to 20% in the control group. Uh, so that's like a relative risk improvement of twofold. Um, and I'm not even going to mention the p-value because I don't think it matters, uh, but it was small. And then the absolute risk um, decrease was 20%, 20%. Okay, like that's like a number needed to treat a five five individuals to have the thrombectomy to prevent um, one of this um, uh, one of the events of a you know bad disability they also looked at secondary outcomes so a rank and score of zero to two which is like pretty darn good functional status and that was 33 percent in the thrombectomy group compared to 10 percent in those without Again, that's like a 20% absolute risk improvement. They looked at the risk of death, um, and the risk of death was 37% in the thrombectomy group, like still pretty high, uh, but compared to 55% in those who did not get thrombectomy. Like, was it all, I don't know, like rainbows and sunshine and flowers? No. Okay, there are risks here. So there's a 5% risk of intracranial hemorrhage in the thrombectomy group, and um, none in the control group um, uh, experienced intracranial hemorrhage. And then there's also procedural complications. So 14% of patients had a complication. Um, often this was a perforation. That doesn't sound good. Um, or um, an arterial dissection also doesn't sound good. Wow, that those results are incredible, even with all of uh, the sort of risks and um, procedural complications associated with it. Um, were there any limitations associated with the study? Yeah, so it was an unblinded trial. Um, so that, of course, could introduce biases such as surveillance bias. But remember, the outcome adjudication was blinded, so it prevents again that against that. This is still a relatively small clinical trial. Uh, also, it's not generalizable to patients with an NIH stroke scale less than 10 or those individuals um, that came in more than 12 hours after their stroke onset. And of course, you know, you want to be able to replicate these types of results 
And guess what? Uh, there was a companion trial published in the New England Journal in the same issue called the Bayoki. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. It sounds like Steve Aoki. That was a DJ <laughs> I used to listen to. I don't know what he's up to these days. But um, so Bayoki, B-A-O-C-H-E. So this was a randomized trial of 217 individuals uh, randomized to thrombectomy versus no thrombectomy. And um, it was for individuals who came within six to 24 hours, so an even longer time window. And the trial was stopped early. And it was stopped early due to benefit and almost identical uh, benefit as what was seen in the trial we just talked about. So like a 20% absolute improvement um, in the primary outcome. That's phenomenal. So it does sound like even with these limitations, um, especially with that companion trial, that um, they're kind of sort of implicitly addressed within that. That's phenomenal. Um, What is the take-home point of the study? I think the take-home point is that for individuals who present with, you know, um, a basal or artery occlusion, no longer should it be, all right, like TPA if you're in the time window and then like we'll sort of wait and watch. I think these individuals have to be prioritized for an EVT, whether that means shipping the patient out to another site, like if I'm working in Sault Ste. Marie, um, or you know, prioritizing that, of course, if, you're, if your hospital is a stroke center. Yeah, I think this is really, really impressive. And we have pretty good risk estimates to discuss with the patients um, or their loved ones, depending on the patient's level of consciousness. With that take-home point and all these results, will this be practice changing for you? A hundred percent. Yeah, it's completely practice changing um, and, um, you know, very relevant for internists and emergency medicine doctors who are working in centers that don't have, um, you know, if they're not a stroke site, um, the importance of still making sure these patients get really fast imaging. You know, you got to do an angiogram, you got to do a CT angiogram, um, because making this diagnosis could potentially lead to the patient getting what appears to be like a life-saving procedure. A hundred percent. And I hope that these results are implemented more broadly as much as they can be. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what happens in the real world as this gets rolled out. Anyway, I felt like that article was good stuff enough for me, but what good stuff caught your eye, Justin? I guess, I don't know if this is good stuff, but on the topic of falling Kingston, um, the trees looked very, very vivid and bright this year. And so I actually found an article on CBC that was published um, within the past couple of days that said that there's an actual climate-related reason for it. Um, Apparently, there's been enough rain and enough cold that makes the trees very red and vibrant. And so that's just made fall very lovely this year. You know, I've noticed that. I've noticed that the the, the leaves look particularly spectacular. I didn't realize there was a bad news story behind it. And it's also like a fine balance of how quickly it snows and how quickly, you know, the rain freezes the leaves and the leaves fall off and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, things I've really come to appreciate from Locoming in Sault Ste. Marie. All right. So uh, my good stuff. Um, this is just like a terrific uh, video that was put together and led by uh, Dr. Emily Hughes, who I, I know you know, and I'm just such a big fan of, um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine's new journal called Nijim Evidence. So it's this really cool video uh, called, really cool from my perspective. Um, so subgroup analyses, subpar or sublime. And I think it really nicely um, walks the listener through things to think about when you're reading a trial that has so many subgroup analyses going on. 
Anyway, I highly recommend that you check it out. I know I will. I'm a big fan of Emily as well. Awesome. Okay, Justin, great to chat. Enjoy those fall colors. Hopefully it won't rain too much and that there won't be snow anytime soon in Kingston. Thank you. I hope the same for you as well in Sault Ste. Marie. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.